0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which digs a little deeper into the best of the food books. This week I'm ignoring the COVID and talking to multi-award winning food writer and culinary explorer Eleanor Ford, whose latest book, The Nutmeg Trail, takes us on an adventure to exotic islands and across trade routes to show how the
1: intoxicating power of spice has changed the world. The Arabs who were bringing cassia and cinnamon uh, to the West would kind of weave stories around them. So, you know, from the very beginning, um, there was a sort of layers of mystery and magic woven into them. She's been called a culinary detective and a gastronomic archaeologist. I asked her how she approached this vast project. I started off by thinking about the region of um, Spice and how its journey has travelled. But the more I delved into it, the more I realised that this is a history and that there's so much to explore over millennia. And in doing so, you don't have, um, being the spice route, being a maritime route overseas, there's not obvious markers to follow. Um, it's all told more in stories, and a great way to trace what's happened is through flavours. So slowly, as I was sort of unpicking things, you can begin to make links by the flavours that you can see that have travelled from one culture to another. And really, cultural exchange gives great clues to the history that I've been exploring.
0: And it is a fantastic story. In terms of the flavour, I love Ottolenghi's quote. He calls the book a spice library. Um, uh, and then the recipes, he says, recipes which allow the reader to travel from Asia to the Middle East along the spice route, taking in so much flavour and so much context on the way. It's the green coconut hot sauce from Somalia, first up for me, followed by the green peppercorn asparagus from Thailand. I also love the flavours, but I have to say it's the depth and the history. It's a very, it's a very, heady blend, isn't it? Exotic islands and delicious recipes. Um, but for me, I love the uh, the gastronomical archaeology, let's say. It's digging deep into the stories of spice. And it feels to me like that film Blood Diamond, um, you know, because you, you open up a rich vein of, of history. And a lot of that history is not Great. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of humanity that had some very, very dark edges?
1: There are certainly dark edges, and that really comes to the fore in um, the 17th century, the 16th, 17th century, when Europeans got a taste for spice. And these spices became something so sort of exotic, they were tied up with status. And whenever something becomes a display of power and of status, you get people who are hungry for more. And that caused... um, Well, it really sparked off a period of colonisation. It sparked the Age of Discovery. And it um, started a period where lands across other sides of the world were being traded for each other um, with huge bloody battles. And the sort of masters were not taking into account the peoples that were involved. It was really a um, horrifying process that was started by spice. But I think what's very important is one can get swept up in that period of the spice route, those sort of bloody centuries, when actually this is a trade that has gone back um, for millennia before that. We can go back to 2000 BC when Arab merchants were conducting a far more peaceful trade along the spice routes. And so I think it's important to see those hugely powerful centuries, but also to see what's gone before that and the kind of quieter power that that's had in the exchange of ideas, the globalization that has tied the East and West together for centuries. Yes. Why do you think it was
0: that spices had such power, to, I mean, you know, you're right. You talk about them, uh, you know, a millennia ago. Spices were used as rents and ransoms, bribes and offerings, you know, that were used in ancient burials to, and to use ward off plagues uh, to ignite carnal desire as well as, you know, wars. What is it about spice that has such incredible power?
1: Well, I think the starting point for spice is it has to involve a journey. There isn't one place where spices come from. Spices are dotted around with um, different starting points, mainly across Asia. And so to combine spices, you have to have given an exotic journey. It's this, it's the sense of the other. There's something a bit mysterious. And um, early spice traders were masters of this. The Arabs who were bringing cassia and cinnamon Uh, to the West, would kind of weave stories around them that there was a cinnamalgus bird who would uh, make its nests on high cliffs out of cinnamon sticks and they would have to scale up mountains to fight off this fearsome bird. So, you know, from the very beginning, there was this mystique and therefore the spices, when they got here, they were already expensive commodities and could be used to demonstrate um power and therefore they got tied into religion into burial rites they got used as medicine um there was a sort of layers of um mystery w- and magic woven into them
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I was just reading some of the quotes on on the back of the book and, you know, mesmerising and uh, intoxicating and those words are used. And it it really is a story of weaving magic around people. It makes life better in a very simple way. You know, the food tastes better. In terms of the ransoms, tell us a little bit about what you know about the ransoms. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it?
1: Well, really, you got um, spices at certain points in history, holding such value that they could be used as currency. And so we've got phrases like peppercorn rent, which still exists, Mm. which, which demonstrates the times where people could be paid, and uh, debts could be paid off. And particularly when you had warring nations, um, battling with each other, you know, very often, The coffers would be filled with something like cloves or nutmeg, um, and these could be used to pay off debts.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because it feels very generous and very uh, feminine to add beauty and uh, charm and flavour to a ransom. It's a a
1: sweetener. There's been different approaches throughout history towards flavour and the flavours that a different culture will adopt. So you get periods where you have incredibly spiced, pervasive food that's brought into banquets as displays of power. So the Roman Empire, that was a time when food was incredibly highly spiced and often with peppercorns. And and you you would use it as a kind of display of wealth and of masculinity. You know, great emperors would have uh, banquet halls where flower petals would rain down from the ceilings. And, you know, that centred was so evocative of power that it had perhaps a different connotation to it has now. Yeah, you're right. It's the COVID talking. I know all that. Of course, it's a
0: show <laughs> of masculine power and, and, and wealth, as it's always been. Let's just talk about um, what spice actually is.
1: Well, if we take a kind of most basic definition, we are looking at the parts of plants that are really intense in flavour. So they have got the kind of oils, the the terpenes that are there that provide a real intensity. Um, but then you can slightly cloud it with what is the difference between a spice and a herb, which also has those intense flavours, um, more so than a vegetable, but usually, spice comes with a historical element as well. It's involved a journey, a travel. And if we look at the origin of the word, it is species which means a sort of exotic produce that has come and has travelled and made a journey. And so throughout different centuries, we've had different foods that fall under the category of spice. And at times, you know, even things like tea and sugar have been classed as spices. Or going back further, things like ivory might have fallen into that category. Really? Why? because of it being this item of special value. And it's really that specialness that's inherent in the word spice, in the theory of spice being something that should be treasured. This is your third book.
0: And each
1: time you
0: go to the same area of the world don't you feel drawn back to java to bali to sumatra in your last book in fire islands uh, which was the winner of multiple awards What what is it about that part of the world that just keeps
1: bringing you back i think i've got a very personal connection to asia i've lived there at various parts of my life and um my book on Indonesian food was a revisit for me from a place that I'd lived as a child and then gone back as an adult and um, taken my family to live there for a period. But really, it's, it's more than that. It's the stories of food. And I've become so fascinated across all my books about the movement of flavours and how you can see the different influences um, of history of peoples of movement coming through in food that we eat today and it's really a way to sort of taste culture it kind of is i use food as a lens into which to explore culture and history
0: my absolute favorite subject it's what cooking the books is all about let's go to bali with your first food moment um the balinese green bean
1: urap Well, I wanted to talk about this um, Urap because the spices here are fresh spices rather than dried. And it's kind of curious to me that we have Indonesia, the absolute heartland of some of the dried spices that we use um, so much in the West, nutmeg and clove particularly. But in Indonesia itself, so often the spices used are fresh. It will be about creating a fresh spice paste called a bumbu. And this typically will have garlic, shallots, ginger, galangal, and fresh turmeric and chilies pounded together to make a very fragrant base. And then that can be taken in different directions with small tweaks. Sometimes some dried spices will be added, perhaps um, coriander seeds or a little bit of nutmeg. But then this um, paste is fried until it's incredibly fresh and fragrant. And one of the dishes I've used it here is an urap. So the fried spice paste is mixed with grated coconut Mm. and lime leaves. And then that kind of fresh fragrant uh, mixture is used as a dressing for green vegetables in large quantity. So rather than dressing with an oil or with citrus, you are dressing it with a large amount of this spiced grated coconut. And it really demonstrates for me the fragrance of the cuisine. What's the difference then between a sambal and a a bumbu? Well, a bumbu and a sambal are slightly different. A sambal always has a chilli base. So a sambal is a form of chilli sauce that's blended together and very often will have a cooked element, a bumbu, in it. But a bumbu is the cooking base that you use for food. So it's kind of laying the foundations. And then a sambal is often used at the end. So it's almost like the starter and then the finisher of a dish. Both with spices used in a slightly different way. Of course, the spice that everyone has an opinion about is chili. Well, I think that as humans, we're sort of drawn to things that give us an adrenaline boost, slight pain tinged with pleasure. Um, and whether it's going on a roller coaster, watching a scary movie or adding a little bit of chilli to our food. It's giving us just that little edge, that something which is slightly uncomfortable, but can bring us so much pleasure. (laughs) And
0: of course, we see it all over, dude food programmes on telly, you know, daring people to eat as much chilli as they can. I mean, when you see those (laughs) programmes, what do you think? Well, I
1: think it's a different thing. It's taking away from the subtle joy that can be had with chilli because chilli really when it's used gently will elevate all the other tastes it's there as an enhancer you know it tickles the palate in a in a different way and it can be used to bring out flavours. When you're taking it to the extreme, you're, you're moving to a different challenge entirely and you're obliterating flavour. And I don't think that's how chilli is used in most of the world.
0: No, of course it's not. I'm losing the point completely. You do give a wonderful sweeping history of it, though. Tell us um, how it started off as the Portuguese sea trade, which ignited a fire in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Southeast China and Southwest Indian cooking.
1: Well, what's so interesting to me is chili for so long was confined to uh, Central South America, where they're native to. And so Asia is fairly new to chili as a spice in culinary terms. Before then, there was definitely a taste for heat, um, for ginger, for peppercorns. But it was the Portuguese, uh, Columbus coming and so-called discovering chili um, and taking it west with him that very quickly um, sparked a spread around um, the rest of the world. Uh, Within about 50 years of the um, early 16th century, Chile had completely taken over Asia as the lead hot spice. Because unlike peppercorns, which sort of require a bit of a process, chilies are something people could grow in their gardens. It is a quick, easy source of heat. And so didn't become part of this fabled spice trade. It didn't have a value associated with it. It was a plant rather like ginger had millennia before that could just spread naturally and inherently.
0: And of course, you say that Korea now has the highest per capita consumption of chilli on earth. How how did that
1: happen? Uh, it is kimchi that fires it, really. The pervasive use of kimchi means that chilli has really taken off. And it's interesting seeing some countries now which uh, chilli is escalating in use, like um, Japan, like Germany, where Chili hasn't been used so much traditionally, but I think that once countries get a taste for heat, you can really see the use escalate. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about how it's just spreading into other
0: countries like Germany and and the Arab world. I would have thought. I mean, we know that a lot of the Middle Eastern countries use a lot of more sort of fragrant spices, don't they? They don't tend to use chili in the way, but it, that's absolutely. but that's changing.
1: I think that's changing. I think chili use is is changing everywhere, just as it had. Um, earlier. And it can change flavour palettes. But yes, traditionally, the Arab world has relied far more on floral and fragrant and the sweet spices. Yeah.
0: I mean, the whole story is about culinary exchange. We're talking about uh, the movement of spice through empires, through peoples, influencing the way we all eat. Your third food moment is uh, kebabs. Really interesting story of of where kebabs have come from and where they go to and how they pick up the
1: spices along the way. I think kebabs is the f- perfect food to be able to trace a movement. They they started it likely in Turkey. Um, and then it was the Arab spice traders who spread kebabs across the globe. The Arabs had a real um, hold over the spice trade for millennia. And so the traders would Travel to new ports. They would stay there while they waited for the winds to change. And when they're staying, gathering uh, new spices and commodities to take, they would also stop and share ideas. And so these sort of spicy morsels travelled across the Indian Ocean and took on very different forms in their new homes. So um, when they travelled overland and we go through Central Asia, they perhaps stayed closest to the simple roots of food on sticks by fire, you know, a great meal for soldiers. But then as you take them across to Southeast Asia, you have the evolution to things like satay with completely different flavours and um, different adaptations, different ingredients being brought in, but still the origins um, of a common theme and a common people who've moved these ideas around with them mm.
0: and soldiers have have much to say in order to keep your soldiers happy you have to fit them very well um, and a lot of really interesting ideas have come through soldiers over the many hundreds Absolutely. of years your fourth food moment blending and layering spices now missy or what i don't know about this tell me tell me about this now
1: missy what is a lentil dish from ethiopia and the reason I wanted to talk about it is I think it shows so beautifully how spices can be used in layers of cooking. And what you have here at the base is a spiced butter called nitekebe, which you make by cooking down, um, well, an Ethiopian cardamom and other spice, dried spices in the butter to infuse the flavour into that butter. That is then used to lay the foundations of the lentil dish you start with a spice butter and a base of onions you then add the next spice which is burberry which is a dried spice blend full really heady blend filled with so many different spices as well as chilies and that um, is used in generous quantity you cook it out to really um, bring out those flavors add the lentils Um, Towards the end, you add in um, garlic and ginger so that their flavours still are quite fresh and strong. And then when you finish cooking the whole dish, when the lentils are soft, everything's aromatic, you finish it again with the spiced butter, um, which you might drizzle over at the table. So there you're getting the idea that the same spices or different spices can be built up and you can get these base notes, the mid notes and the top notes of spices through your cooking. And you say that this,
0: uh, a friend of yours, uh, an acclaimed musician and talented cook, Zudita Johannes.
1: She came and she taught me this recipe and... um, It was wonderful watching her cook. I so enjoy learning from people because she turns the heat up far higher than um, I would. And she sort of throws things in with, you know, a real flair, not measuring, but um, waiting to... Smell the aromas to know the exact point to move on to the next stage of a recipe.
0: Yeah, and you say that you ate it with the sour honeycombed flatbread in Gera. I mean, all these uh, wonderful flavours are coming our way, not least because we are so open to the food of immigrants. You know, we are a fantastically open food culture, aren't we, in Britain? Despite Brexit and all the awful things that make us look like we we we're a divided nation, we actually love food from all over the world. like many many of the Mediterranean countries that are very, and, and most places in the world, are very uh, loyal to to their, their national food. As these flavours have, have hit our homelands, we just can't get enough of them.
1: I think that is so right. And I think that you get that not just in Britain, but in all kind of hubs of trade and of people. You get huge immigrant populations and with them, amazing new food cultures developing. Because it's not just appreciating the food from somewhere else it's watching how those foods adapt to their new home and um, you know with immigrants people will come holding the recipes of their home country in their mind but then they will have new ingredients and new ideas as well and very often these immigrant communities are wonderful hotbeds of kind of creating new ideas and taking cuisines in different directions. I mean, that's very interesting in itself. I,
0: want, I was talking to Sophie Grigson about the Middle Eastern community that have emigrated to Italy. And I said, do you think it'll have an influence on Italian food culture? And she said, absolutely not.
1: Not in a million years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that there are cuisines that feel like they're so embedded and it feels like there is an authentic cuisine. But if one looks back, even over a few hundred years, you can see so many changes and how ideas have always been adopted and shared and so many things that feel inherent to one country actually have roots somewhere far away.
0: It feels to me, I'm always very optimistic about the influence of different food cultures on our own. At this time where all the borders are being ripped up again and war is dominating our headlines, you've you've written such a complex and and, and deep history of food. What can we learn about the endless changing and borders and the invasions
1: and influences of other people on our own? That's a very good question. I think that globalization has always been there and that although we have had wars we have had battles we still see people pushing against each other there is a respect of other cultures and nations and ideas that we can see through cuisine through these sharing and blending of ideas really kind of creates a network of humanity um of peoples around the world just respecting each other. And that's what I love about watching a food travel because it just shows humans being bound together. Mm.
0: I mean, it's very interesting watching what's happening with Cook for Ukraine, Olia, Hercules and Alisa Timushkina's initiative um, to use food to get beyond the grey headlines, to look beyond the rubble and remember a country... Of colour and depth and flavour. And it's a very powerful message, isn't it? You know, Cook for Syria did the same. I wonder if elevating that national cuisine plays into an idea of, of nationalism that isn't such a great idea,
1: but helps to paint a picture of a country that's under stress. I certainly think it helps remind us of the humanity behind the headlines. It shows us that these are the people these are the things that have carried on the tradition and we can all relate to food Um, we can all relate to eating and um, the stories that come with it the lineage there's so much sort of power to that at reminding us that these are people and that they are there beyond the layers of politics that go above them Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Food FM,
0: the online radio station and global podcast platform which aims to change the world through food. Please get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Chili Smith on Instagram and at Chili Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for my newsletter at chili I'll see you next week.